0: You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer— Archea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash America. Ezekiel chapter 14 is where we'll begin. We'll start at verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, when any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols." Now, if you think back to the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai back in Exodus 20, you may remember the very first uh, command. It's a relatively simple command. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a very clear prohibition against idolatry of any kind. Now, one doesn't have to read the Bible very long to realize that God takes idolatry very seriously. In fact, if you were to read through the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you would see that God identifies himself as a jealous God. Which is this really strong, and and if I'm being frank with you, off-putting description of who God is. It brings in all these really negative connotations. Because when I think of someone who is jealous, like a jealous lover, it is not a person who is very pleasant. It's in many ways, what it feels like here is this human, this raw human emotion that leads to so many negative things is now being thrust upon God and it makes me uncomfortable. Which is why I often need help to be reminded of the goodness of God and and maybe even where this idea comes from. Robert Alter is an Old Testament scholar and and he said it this way about the idea of God being a jealous God. He says, the revolutionary idea of a single God uniting all the realms of creation may be a noble and philosophically bold idea, but it is imagined in ancient Israel in powerfully anthropomorphic terms very human-like. God does not tolerate rivals to the hearts of his people. Now, the reason that I like this description from Alter is because Alter's connecting the idea of God's jealousy to the revolutionary idea of a singular God who created all things. And this is all within the imagination of Israel. Now, we may not like that term imagination as it relates to God and the attributes and the qualities of God, but I think we all have to admit that, there are, that we don't have a clear conception of who God is, right? We've got experiences, we've got things that we read, we've got th- what the Bible says, but then there's these gaps. And we do spend time filling in those gaps with our understanding of who God is and the way that we fill those gaps in is with our minds, right? And, and so what Israel did is they, they thought about what they knew about who God was and how God had revealed himself, that all of their existence, everything that is, owes its existence to God. And that they believe that there's not all these other gods, right? There's not some pantheon of gods. There's just one God. And this one God is uniting everything, earth and sea and forest and animal and human, all of it together, in such a way that there's harmony, and there's peace, and there's shalom. And if this God is doing all of this, if this God is working to bring any everything into harmony into perfect relationship with one another, so that true peace can be experienced, then then. Isn't it natural to assume that this God would be suspicious of anything that subverts and undoes this work? It very, it, it leads itself to one believe, yes, God could be jealous. Jealous in such a way that acknowledges that this thing, this other thing that is not me, is working to undo. Now we might call that anger, but jealousy is another thing because it's creeping in and it's, it's turning the attention of God's people and even God's creation away from God. So maybe jealousy is a good word. It may make us uncomfortable, but maybe the discomfort is okay because maybe the discomfort forces us to reckon with not just our ideas about God, but whether or not we truly want to be under the reign and the rule of this one God who is sovereign and is determinative in the design and the direction of the universe. And I think this is what Ezekiel is getting at in chapter 14 here. He's really asking the elders or, or, or conveying this idea about the question of do you truly want all of your life to be under the reign and the rule of this one true God? And so when the elders come to Ezekiel, they ask for a word from God. They want to they hear what God is up to. They want to hear what the Lord is doing and how they can make sure that they're on good side and if there's anything that they need to do in order to make God happy. And all the while they're asking Ezekiel, like, what do we need to do to make God, make God happy? On the side over here, they're also worshiping all these other gods and they've got these idols. Now, this may be, get me in a little bit of trouble here, <clears throat> but it's super fun, and so we're going to go down this aside, okay? The Bible, most Bibles, and, and by most Bibles, I mean, the, you pick up an English translation, and whether it's the NIV, the ESV, or the New Living Translation, or any, it's like you go to Bible Hub, and you pump in it, punch it in, and you get all these different ones. When you look at it, Ezekiel 14, they translate it almost all idols. Now, the Hebrew word here is Gilulem, Okay? Robert Alter, again, uh, the guy I quoted earlier, Old Testament scholar, he's got a translation of the entire Old Testament that I have at home, and it's absolutely f- phenomenal. He's the only one I've seen translate this differently, and where it says idols in Ezekiel chapter 14, he translates it to foul things. But Then he's got a little asterisk down there, and it goes down to the footnotes, right? And he begins to describe that when Ezekiel uses this term gilulem for idols— He's translating it foul things, but, but it's not really just foul things. Okay, Ezekiel a bit of a, he's a crude prophet. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, I am sure that your moral sensibilities as good church people will be rightly offended in multiple ways at multiple times. There are parts of Ezekiel that I will not read from up here. It's that, and I'm not making it like, it's that bad. Just keep reading beyond chapter 14. You'll get there in six or seven, uh, yeah, six, seven, maybe nine chapters. You'll get there. You'll see what I'm talking about. And all kids will be like, I'm going there right now. See you later. All right. I'll just say this earlier in Ezekiel, uh, he is known for cooking his, his dinner, his bread over human excrement. All right this is who, I mean, he's a bit of a performance artist, all right? He holds nothing back. Anyways, Ezekiel is so disgusted with the idea of idols and false gods that he will not even give them the dignity of being called false gods or idols. Instead, he calls them gilulem, which recalls the Hebrew term, and this is Robert Alter in the footnote, not my word, for turds, okay? Your idols, they're turds. That's what he's saying, okay? That's just my fun, a little side. If you, I'm here. Here, let me. Uh, my goal is to get you to like the Bible. Okay? If you don't find the Bible interesting now, I don't know. Anyways, so Ezekiel's point is that the people are preoccupied with things that don't even deserve a proper term. And the people are giving themselves to making sure those things are happening, are happy, and they're getting the attention and all of that. They're constantly thinking about them. They're making space for them in their thought, thinking about them in their life. And then they're coming and trying to get a word from God. And the response that God has is, is, I'm going to deal with them and these turds. And I'm going to recapture the hearts of my people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove the idol, and I am going to be the one at the center. Now this makes me wonder, what are our idols? Do we know the things that are in our hearts that are capturing our attention and our desires and our thoughts that are taking up our time? Do we acknowledge them or even acknowledge the truth that we have some? And then, maybe more importantly, do we know how God is going to deal with both our idols and with us? Because for most of us, I think, when we think of how God is going to deal with our idols or deal with the fact that we have idols, so deal with us, it brings us back to this idea of a jealous God. And when we think of a jealous lover and how a jealous lover deals with the competition and the other person, it's, it evokes these images of anger and dismissiveness and, and, and sometimes even violence. And so if we think about God as someone who is jealous, who wants our total love and devotion and then acknowledge that we have these idols, well, then we may be in danger of experiencing the wrath of this short-tempered being who is disgusted by the existence of these things in our lives and, and therefore might deal with us in a harsh manner or dismiss us, write us off, push us out, or we might experience some kind of violence in our life. And so, so let's, let's not talk about idols, all right? Now here's the thing, how we conceive of God matters. And how we conceive of how God acts in the world matters. It shapes both how we relate to God, but then also how we relate to other people. It, it, theology is not just something for the ivory towers, theology is not just something for Sunday mornings, but theology shows up in our life in all of these different places. And if we've got this conception of a God who is jealous in terms of being like angry and wrathful and dismissive, then it's going to show up in ways that cause us to likely do that to other people. In 1517 too, there was a Jesuit priest by the name of Jose de Acosta who traveled to Lima, Peru. Acosta was a missionary from Spain who came to the New World as Spain began to colonize it in order to convert the people who lived there. But Acosta, when he arrived in Peru, did not leave Spain behind. And what I mean is, he saw the new world and he saw the people of the new world and he saw the religion of those people in the new world through the lens of life in Spain. And so as he saw what Spain was doing, he thought about it from a very Spanish perspective. For example, uh, here's one thing that he wrote in a passage. He said, hence, we see that the lands in the Indies that are the richest in mines and wealth Have been those most advanced in the Christian religion in our time. And thus the Lord takes advantage of our desires to serve his sovereign ends. All that sounds great, right? He's saying these new places that happen to have a lot of wealth uh, are the most Christian, and thus we can see the providence of God. We can see God at work here. But look at this. In this regard, a wise man once said that what a man does to marry off an ugly daughter is give her a large dowry. This is what God has done with that rugged land, endowing it with great wealth in mines so that whoever wished could find it by this means. In other words, the reason that the Spanish were in Peru and the Indies is because of all the silver and gold there. They wanted to be wealthy. They were driven by their greed. So they go to the new world. And Thankfully, they bring Christianity with us. So all that happens there is just fine. What, this is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty at work is using the desires of human beings, greed for more gold and wealth. Christianity now gets spread. So this is his thinking here. Christianity didn't come to Peru because of goodwill or charity or love. Instead, it comes because of Spain's wealth and conversion happens to be a byproduct. Right? Right? Now, in this idea, Acosta is thinking of those in Peru as the ugly daughter. God gives a big dowry, a whole lot of gold and silver, so that that daughter might be married off. Now, he's a missionary. And he's thinking of these people as an ugly daughter. And, 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 and I think he has this conception of this jealous God. I think it's good and right to want to free people from something that is false. To tell them the truth. But notice how Acosta does this by looking at this. what he writes in this next passage. It is easier to refute what is false about the Indians' origin than to discover the truth. For among them there are neither writings nor any certain memories of their first founders. In other words, because they're not as sophisticated as us, because they don't have writing, and because they don't have the same kind of history as we do, it's really hard to figure out if there's anything true about their way of life. It, it, it's not worth trying to understand if their customs have some things right. It's not. It's not really worth the time and the energy it takes to explore their religions and to comprehend. Uh, to comprehend their practices and their senses and moralities. Instead, we're just going to tell them that they're wrong. We're just going to straight out refute them and then we're going to tell them the right way to believe and to live. That's how we're going to deal with this false reality, these false gods and these idols. We're just going to come in and we're going to crush them. We're going we're to show them that they're wrong and then we're going to dismiss them completely. It's kind of how how we might imagine a jealous God would. I'm just going to crumble in and crush them. I'm going to destroy them. And then I'm going to tell you why I'm the true God. But what if the jealousy of God doesn't show up as anger? Or wrath? Or quick dismissal? What if the jealousy of God shows up as something that is much more in character with how God has revealed himself in Christ? What if the jealousy of God shows up as grace and love and a slowness to anger? Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Starting at verse 16. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said to Said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this description To an unknown God, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. For though, though he is not far from any of us, For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day When he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now, about 50 years before Jose de Costa went to Lima, Peru, there was another man by the name of Bartolome de las Casas who came to the Americas. And he lived in different portions of the Americas, but he was one of the first Spanish settlers in the Americas, so very early 1500s. Quickly, in his experiences in the Indies and in other parts of the Americas, he became convinced that the colonial practices of the Spanish were wrong. He thought they were too violent. He thought they were too dismissive of the, of the cultures that were there. And so he sought to change that. And he did that first by freeing his own slaves. He then worked to try to, to create a more peaceful system of colonialism. Within the Spanish world, he tried to abolish slavery. And he did all of this in the mid-16th century. So this is even long before the slave trade even gets up and running. You have de la Casas who's trying to abolish it. Now, when it came to the people of Americas and their religion, he had it in a a completely different approach than Acosta, where Jose de Acosta didn't seek to understand or even uh, to understand the truth of the native people and their religion, just completely refuted it and dismissed it. De la Casas came to believe that all people operate out of some knowledge of God. He believed that all people will worship God according to their culture and their capacities in some way, even if they aren't truly aware of it, that they're, they're worshiping and recognizing some aspect of the true God. He even believed that some of the sacrifices, that or not some, he believed that the sacrifices that were offered to the gods of the people were ultimately offered to the true God, as God was understood by the native people. So this is a relative. I mean, this isn't some postmodern guy. This isn't some like liberal New Age. Like he was writing in the mid sixteenth century, so it sounds a little foreign to us, but it also sounds. A lot like what Paul did in Athens. Paul's in Athens and he begins walking around and he sees that the people are very religious and that they have all of these idols set up, all of these altars set up to all these different gods, but there's this one to an unknown God. Now, it's at this point we could sort of read into. Paul's words here when he says that you are ignorant but it's not like this ignorant in a derogatory way but more of and he's not dismissing the people but rather he's saying you just don't know he recognizes you all are extremely religious and you're devout in all of your practices in fact you're so devout that you want to make sure you've covered all your bases by saying if there's a God that we don't know of we want to make sure that we in some way are worshiping that God you got that right. Paul is saying, you Athenians, you got that right. There is a God that you don't know of. Or at least that you don't have a full understanding of who they are. I want, to, I want to tell you about that God so that you are no longer ignorant. And then what Paul did was not denigrate their culture. He didn't dismiss it. And he didn't even try to refute it. If you notice, he's not refuting anything. Instead, Paul tells them the story of God and what God is doing in God's relationship to the world and uses their culture to communicate with them. He points to the altar to the unknown God. But then he also pulls out these phrases from their own philosophers and poets. I mean, think about that phrase, in him we move, we live and move and have our being. Like how central is that to our understanding as Christians? How often do we understand God in that way and we think about it and it becomes just commonplace? Those are actually the words of Epimenides who lived in the 6th century BCE. It's a Greek philosopher. In him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul pulls out another prophet and says, we are his offspring. Or not prophet, a poet I mean. We are his offspring, which is absolutely true. And we see that idea throughout the Bible. But Paul is pointing at their culture and saying, you understood right here. This was true. This was right. He didn't just refute it all, dismiss it all as backwards or completely wrong, but he wanted to pull out the aspects where they were, they were getting at it. They were pointed in the right direction. And they want, he wanted to say, let's keep going down this road and let me explain this even further to you. Paul, in the very real sense, entered their culture and from there began to invite those who he was talking with in the Areopagus to have their hearts wooed, captured by God. Which brings me back to my original question. What idols might our hearts need to be recaptured from? And let me say it just a little bit differently here. The problem in Athens was that they were very aware of all of the gods and the idols in their lives, but they were not aware of the name of the true God. Might our problem be the opposite? That we know the name of the true God But we are ignorant of all the false gods and idols in our lives. Is it possible that we come here on Sunday and we sing about Jesus and we pray to Jesus during the week and we still harbor thoughts and desires for things that compete with God in our hearts? But we just ignore that. Or we don't even acknowledge that it's there. I mean, for so many of us, when we think of the word idol, it conjures up like uh, uh, images of statues or something carved, right? Uh, but, but the idol is, is something that's much more broad than that. Tim Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And then he gives three different categories for uh, the way, where those idols might be. And I'm, I'm sure this isn't it, right? But he says, one, these idols can be personal. So you can think of money or success or romantic love or whatever might give you hope or fulfillment or meaning that should only come from God. They can be personal or they might be cultural. So military power, technological success, traditional social structures, hard work, duty, moral, obligation, freedom, all of these types of things. Or they can be intellectual, enlightenment thinking, the scientific method, progressivism, conservatism. Idols are everywhere and can be infinite, right? Nietzsche got it right. If we want to just pull out and say like Nietzsche, Nietzsche got it right when he said there are more idols in the world than there are realities. So what's, what are yours? We have them, right? We all do. I do. I can remember when I was young I don't know, exact age seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there I used to imagine that I had a superpower well, not imagine. I longed that I had a superpower that I had not yet discovered. All I had to do was go be with Professor X, or something like that. And he would draw the superpower out of me and I would discover that I had this thing. And it wasn't just like an imaginary thinking, right? It wasn't like imagining that I have lasers that shoot out of my eyes or whatever. It was like this sincere hope that there was something unique in me, that there was something powerful within me that set me apart and made me different and exceptional. On the one hand, we could psychologize this and say, isn't it great that a kid wants to be exceptional and different and we should just all embrace our identity and, 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 and we'll, like, yes, okay, there's space for that. I'm now a 41-year-old man and I still long for something inside of me that maybe I even haven't yet discovered yet that makes me unique and different, and exceptional. And if I shared with you the amount of energy and thought I put into either A, discovering what that thing is, or B, proving that I already have it, well, let's just say I don't even want to acknowledge how much time that would be. And again, we could psychologize it and say it's good to want to have a unique identity and to be different and to discover who you are and all of that. Yeah, it is. But there's also a point in which that can become an idol. And I can become so concerned with becoming different and unique and exceptional that I'd neglect becoming like Jesus. Jesus. I'd go so far to say it's it's an idol for me. It's a false god. That if I discover this, then I'll have contentment. Then I'll be satisfied. Then then I'll have the fulfillment that I hope for. Yeah. Yeah, I've got them. I could also talk about some really superficial ones. Right? And maybe you can too. The things that, you just keep going back to the internet and you're looking and researching and reading about, maybe it's some thing that you want. I say that because this week I bought a new car and like the amount of time I spent looking at it was just stupid, right? Like, Maybe it's something superficial like that. Maybe it's, maybe it's a sports thing or something that, that you memorize and have all of these stats about sports and you give all your time and attention to understanding and thinking about all the different teams and the trades that are coming up and all of this sort of stuff. And when you compare that to the amount of time you spend reading scripture and praying, like it just doesn't, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's superficial like that. Maybe it's something that's deep rooted to who you are. Maybe it's a way of thinking. I don't, I don't know. Do you know what your idols are? And if you don't, why don't you? Maybe one reason is you don't want to because you'd rather not know because you like the way your life is right now. You don't want to upset your life. It works for you. It's comfortable. You're happy in it. Why change this? So I'd rather not know what my idols are and I don't want to do the work of exploring. I don't know. Maybe that point's worth exploring. Or maybe, maybe you're afraid of the God who's said to be a jealous God. And you don't want the potential anger and dismissal that could come from this idol in your heart. And so I just don't want to acknowledge that it's there because the idea of that God is so scary. I'm going to end soon. (laughs) But when I... I, I've taught Acts 17 a couple of different times in my life. I actually preached on it a number of years ago. I went back and looked. I think it was like from 2011 or something like that. <laughs> and I read through the, the manuscript. and be like, is there any good nuggets in here? Why I still work here and how you allow me to still work here after reading through that, I have no idea. It was, it was awful. It was atrocious and and I preach and I've used it in the past when I was a youth pastor as well and often well, the way that I talked about both times really the way that I did is is we should be like Paul we should go through and we should examine our culture and we should look at the different ways in which or the different gods and idols that are in our culture and we should point people then to the true God we should do it in this way and this is becomes this text that that is held up as we need to mimic Paul as so that we can be better missionaries or evangelists here in this world right now and, 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 and I think there's some application points for that. But it was this time, as I read through Acts 17, what I was struck by is that this passage, I believe, is less about Paul and is more about God. Because from this passage, we learn some, some incredible things about who God is. God is the one who made the world and everything in it. God does not live in buildings or in churches or in houses. Instead, the whole world is God's because God created it and then decided to draw near to it. And yet, even though God is sovereign and in in control and God is the one who created all things, God doesn't relate to the world as this master-servant relationship. The expectation that we would have to work ourselves to the bone in order to gain approval from God is not expected. Instead, God freely gives life and breath and bread and drink and comfort and peace. God oversees all that is happening in the world and then God looks after it because God wants you and I to enjoy this world that God created. God wants you to see the care and the attention and the care and and, and the love and the devotion that God gives to the world so that in that, when you see God's care and attention to the world, you would reach out to God and realize, and you're reaching out to God, that God in fact is not far from you. But God is near close intimate there is no difference between or no distance between you and God because your whole life is enveloped in God's presence and more than that you're not just in God's presence but you are God's child God desires you And God, as the sovereign who oversees all of the world and is near to the world, sees you in all that you do, even when you are chasing after things of this world, even when there are idols set up in your heart, God sees this. It's not hidden, it's not done in secret. God sees you chasing after money, thinking that you need it for security and comfort. God sees you desiring new things and new houses and new toys because you think that they will satisfy you. God sees you desiring that the particular way in which you think approach the world will continue to be prominent God sees that you have a team in this world that you would want to see win over and over again and it is not the same thing as the team of God's kingdom you see that God sees that you don't want your life unaltered or interrupted by God because this thing that you have is thought to be best or good or whatever God sees all of those desires of yours but as Willie James Jennings says God desires those who desire idols oh come on God desires those who desire idols. God desires those who desire idols. Is that the jealousy of God? It's not anger. It's not vindictiveness, it's not hatred, it's not wrath, it's not dismissal. God desires those who desire idols. Pure, unmerited grace that is born out of a deep desire for those who bear his image. God came close to us and revealed himself in Jesus. God showed us his love for us that while we were yet, while we were yet idolaters, <laughs> Jesus died for us. And God did this because God desires to recapture our hearts, your heart, my heart to turn us from the idols and to welcome us into the fullness of life in Christ this is who the true God is the true God is not wood or stone or gold or some idea the true God is not angry or capricious the true God is love God desires those God desires those who desire idols May that good news may it capture our hearts Let's pray May our hearts be captured by your love for us. May your grace overwhelm us. May your mercy satisfy. May we want nothing more. May we want nothing more than to know the depths of your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.